0: The qualifications for leaders are listed here by the Apostle Paul. The first section dealing with bishops, which is pastors, overseers, shepherds, all synonymous terms or even elders, all of those words mean the same thing, bishops, elders, shepherds, overseers. They are the pastors, the leaders of the local congregation. Then the second section deals with deacons, the elected laity who serve as servants in the body of Christ. And that is the exact structure of our church. We have ordained pastors who are, in the terminology of 1 Timothy 3, bishops, or pastors, or overseers, or shepherds, synonymous terms, then we have nine deacons elected by the congregation to serve, and each of them have areas of responsibility. And they minister to the body of Christ in those areas of responsibility so that the overseers may give their attention more fully to the work of ministry. It is that which was established in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. As God told the early leaders to select deacons, so that these overseers could give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These two groups in our church serve as the official board of the church, and they meet monthly to take care of the business of the church, and they meet weekly to pray and seek the face of God for the blessing of the Lord upon the church. Now, the question tonight is, what are the qualifications for these people? And we don't have to look far to find them. There are specific instructions here for the kind of men who should hold the responsibilities that I have just described in the local church. Paul, writing about church government, which is verse 15, If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So we know that what he is referring to here is church government, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Nothing more important in the economy of God than securing right leadership for the work of the Lord. If you believe that, would you say amen? Amen. Do I need to remind you that a church can progress no further than its leadership? It is impossible. There will be no more progress than the leaders are able to progress and to develop themselves in their spiritual life and in their walk with God and in their leadership role as men of God in the local community. Here is a statement that I love to make. If the leaders are right, the work will be right. Now that should have evoked more response than that. If the leaders are right, the work will be right. That is true. That's why you should pray for leaders. For if the leaders are wrong, hindrance and breakdown ensues. You just cannot get away from it. We are seeing that today in some areas of church life. Breakdown and hindrance for the work of the Lord. Now, as we look at this passage, and we're not going to take a long time on each one of these, my wife said, you've got ten things according to the notes, how long are you going to take on each one? I said, honey, no more than ten minutes per point. She said, wait a minute, that's a hundred minutes. I said, that's right. Then I smiled, and she, I think, felt relief. I won't take that long, I promise you. It won't take that long at all. But what we want to point out at the very beginning here is that not everyone is qualified to bear the responsibility of leadership in spiritual work. So there is a standard that God has set forth, not man. God set this forth. And I want you to understand that. This is a standard that God put forth, not man. And it is a standard that man sometimes tries to circumvent. And certain people are trying to circumvent that standard today. And I want to say it just will not work. It's impossible. If the leaders are right, the work will be right. Therefore, it's impossible to circumvent what God has set forth as characteristics of leaders. So let's take them one by one. First of all, a bishop must be blameless, verse 2. Now that sounds almost impossible, doesn't it? Well, it does not mean perfect. That I need to say right off the top. It does not mean perfect. If it meant perfect, there would be no bishops. There would be no pastors. There would be no overseers. So verse 7 helps us to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul. Look down the page to verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Now, what I think is important here is that he must have a clear testimony. That is what the word blameless means in this passage of Scripture. Romans 14, 7 says, No man lives to himself. And that's so true. Nobody is an island. So when we look at leadership and we look at bishops and deacons, We learn that he must be a person of good testimony. He is blameless in that regard. You should not find his name on creditor's lists. You should not find his name under bankruptcy proceedings. You should not find him in the arrest columns. He is a person of good testimony, above reproach. You should not be able to point your finger at that individual and say, I have this against you. This is a person who so lives the Christ life that you can say he is above reproach. And in the terminology of verse 2, he is blameless in the community, not living to himself but letting Jesus Christ shine through him to the world that is out beyond. That's what you look for in leaders. Number two. See, that didn't take ten minutes, honey. Verse two, he is a man of unquestioned moral integrity. It says he must be blameless and the husband of one wife. This is a man of unquestioned morality. That is what underlines this statement. No immoral relationships or impropriety of any kind. That is a requirement. That is why we in our movement demand of leadership when they have had proven immorality and impropriety a minimum of two years on the shelf under supervision and counsel so that they may prove themselves again to be a man of God above reproach. It has to be according to the word of God. You do not put these people back into leadership until they are proven to have found God's grace sufficient to bring them through that problem and that crisis. And they can again minister above reproach. I don't need to bring names into this. You can make your own application. It is a sad, sad thing when ministers are more friendly with Marvin Belli than they are with their own elders. It is a direct violation of everything the New Testament teaches. You do not submit yourself to lawyers. You submit yourself to the elders of the church and you say, what must I do to prove myself again a man of God? That has to be. I wouldn't trust anything to a person who would not do that in spiritual terms. So, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I do get a little bit upset about it. No one whose marriage relationship is questionable or whose attitude towards the opposite sex is careless or frivolous should ever be given a position of responsibility in God's work. That's what this verse implies blameless, the husband of one wife. He's given himself to one person. He finds fulfillment in that person. He lives a life of morality. He lives a life above reproach. There is never a question about that person's propriety with the opposite sex. It's exactly what it means. And if you don't have that, you do not have a leader, and they do not deserve a place of leadership. All right, got it? Number three, and that didn't take 10 minutes either. A man of Christian grace and spiritual discipline, verses two and three. Temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. It's a mouthful. There are seven virtues or graces in verses 2 and 3. Let me just cover them quickly. Seven is the perfect number in the Bible. So look at them one by one. Vigilant is the terminology, circumspect, temperate, disciplined. All of those are synonymous terms. Ephesians 5.15 says that we are to walk circumspectly, which means watchful and careful. That is the first Virtue of this God-called leader of the New Testament church. He is vigilant. He is circumspect. He is temperate. He is disciplined. He walks circumspectly. He is not loose. He is not careless. He is vigilant and disciplined, for there is no dynamic without discipline. That is a requirement of the leader. He doesn't get up at 10 o'clock in the morning. He has a life that has brought under the flesh, and he lives not for self but for others and for the glory of God and is able to say to others, follow me as I follow him. That is the God called leader. Of the church. Now it says sober, he's sober minded. That is translated self controlled. He has himself in subjection. He is not out of control. He is not like an automobile heading down a hill with no driver. He is a person who is sober or self controlled. He is not given to excesses. Do I need to make that application with some of the things we've been reading about these days? Not given to excesses. He's sober. And that does not just mean in terms of drinking something. That means self-controlled in every area of his life. Whether it be clothing, whether it be eating, whether it be drinking... Whether it be the type of lifestyle that he has, he is self controlled, sober, and in that sense is able to be an example to the rest of the church. Thirdly, he is of good behavior. Now that means modest, it means a Christian gentleman, it means he doesn't flaunt himself in front of the world as some big, deal. He is a person of moderacy, of good behavior. He is not so wrapped up in himself that he doesn't see somebody else. In fact, if you want to put it in focus, he tries to model Jesus Christ in that regard. Modest. A person who you would call a Christian gentleman. That's why I think I appreciate Billy Graham so much. Forgive me for using him as an example. I guess a lot of us do. But there is a Christian gentleman. There is a modest model for leadership in the Church of Jesus Christ. And there are others Thank God we have them here in our own body, in our own fellowship. I could point some of them out to you, but I I won't do that. I think you know who they are. But Billy Graham is is a model of ministry to the world. Of this particular point in 1 Timothy 3, he is of good behavior, has been. They've tried to trump things up against him and he lives them all down. They've tried to catch him in certain situations by planting people who will catch him, and they have never been able to do it because he models this as a modest Christian gentleman of good behavior. Number four of the seven, he's not given to wine, or as it's translated, not one who lingers by the wine. A leader must be temperate, a man of firm convictions and of Christ-glorifying habits. He should be able to stand in front of the world and say, you don't need this because I have already proven that in my own life. That's what this is talking about. Not given to wine. We know what happens when you're given to wine. Person loses control. And that should never happen with this Christian God called leader. And he models that kind of life to the rest of the world. And I have said to our membership classes when we go through some of these things as far as standards for the Church of Jesus Christ in general. I am delighted always, and I say this to the glory of God and as a testimony before the world that I have not ever in my own life ever, ever, ever had a drink of any kind. I don't know what alcohol tastes like. It has never passed by my lips. I don't know a thing about it. And I don't feel I have missed one thing in life. I don't need a social drink. I don't need a wake-upper. I don't need a put-to-sleeper. I don't need anything but Jesus Christ as the wine of my life. And I'm planning to stay that way. So I have said, don't ever try to convince me that you need some of this to survive. I'm just not a good candidate to convince. Okay? Still love me anyway. Number five... This person is not a striker. Now that means not quarrelsome or contentious. A person who does not get easily upset or who flies into a rage. The God called leader cannot be in that kind of position. No striker. Six, he's patient, which goes with number five. When things aren't going his way, he's gentle, he's kind, he's peaceful unless you come to a point like Jesus came to in the temple when he was so incensed because he said, my house shall be called the house of prayer, and then he rose up in righteous anger and drove the money changers out of the temple. That's different than what you find here. Up to that point, Jesus embodied patience, and everything else that goes along with it, gentle, kind, and peaceful. But there was a time when he got angry with sin, and he got angry with sinners. Number seven, he's not a brawler, or he's not contentious, not a controversialist, in the sense that everything that he seems to touch turns into a controversial issue. I think we have seen some examples of the violation of that in recent days as well as days previous. Those are the seven qualities that are listed here or the seven things that he should not be if he is to be God's servant, God's man, leading God's church in any town or any city or any community in the world. Now the fourth major point, he's a man who is generous, and hospitable. You can follow the point there on your notes. He's given to hospitality. This relates to his Christian duties. Romans 13 2 says that he entertains strangers, for some have entertained strangers or angels unawares. That is the man of God. He entertains strangers, he's hospitable. Romans 12, 13, he distributes to the necessity of the saints. He has social duties. He's given to hospitality. In a hostile world, he is a helper of people. He has the grace of hospitality. A leader should not only have an open house, but an open heart. Willing to embrace people, he's large-hearted, generous-hearted like Onesiphorus, whom Paul referred to in 2 Timothy 1.16, and Barnabas in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Paul said about Barnabas, He oft refreshed me. When the disciples would not receive Paul, Barnabas took him in. And I'm sure he has this kind of man in mind when he says the man of God, the leader, is generous-hearted and hospitable, like Barnabas or like Onesiphorus. Number five, he's a man with some real ability. He is apt to teach or able to teach, as verse 2 says. Now, this I have to say because this particular emphasis some people overlook in the church of today. This person has to have some aptitude, some skill, or some ability. If he's going to lead others, he has to have some gift of his own. Now, what happens sometime in the church? People who have just come in to the faith, in order to hold them in the church, are put into some place of leadership, a teaching position, Well, friends, according to the Bible, a man needs to prove himself and he needs to show that he's apt to teach. He needs to show that he has some ability to teach. So if you're new here, don't be afraid if somebody says, you need to prove yourself first. We need to see what gifts are there and that demands observation and it demands time and it demands submission on your part to people like Pastor Preston and Pastor Knight and others who are responsible over various ministries where teaching takes place. You have to submit yourself to those brethren so that we can determine if you have this ability, because if you don't, it can be disastrous for the church as well as for you. So... This is the qualification that was looked for in the book of Acts. Men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, they were proven men. And as they were proven, they were moved into places where they would build the church of Jesus Christ, but not before being proven. Apt to teach. Number six, a man whose attitude to money is right. Verse number three, not greedy for money. Well, again, in recent days, we have seen a violation of this. It is tragic that people employed in many areas of PTL were making less than a living wage while certain few in places of leadership were walking off with hundreds of thousands of dollars, while others were living literally on food stamps. Now, friends, there's a great violation here of biblical truth. Not greedy for money. May I just throw this in, because I know it's a fact. From inside... Sources, friends that I know and have talked with at length, who are not in this meeting tonight, whom I asked point blank I said, when did PTL start to go wrong? The answer was quick, it was emphatic. It was sudden. They said that's easy to trace. The year, the income leaped from $2 million to $40 million. At that point, it began to deteriorate from within. Up to that point, this person said, who worked there for years and is a good friend of mine, We didn't get paid for five weeks at a time, and we didn't care. We were all so excited about doing the work of God and being in this growing vision. But suddenly, it changed. When that income took that massive leap in 12 months' time, you can't help at that point to go back to the Scriptures and look at the qualifications for leadership and say that the person involved must not be greedy for money. Power corrupts. And we have a living example of that right now in modern-day history, and it goes back through all of history if you want to take the time to trace it. So we have a man whose attitude to money is right. May I say something to you? A man's character can often be judged by his attitude towards money and earthly possessions. You take a look at a man's attitude about things and you'll learn a lot about that man, a great deal about that man. And if you'll do that, you'll determine whether you want to place yourself under his leadership or not. A Judas-like attitude is not acceptable in leadership. John 12, 6 points out that Judas didn't really care for the poor because he held the bag. Now that should have been a sign to the other disciples, but they didn't catch what Jesus was pointing out. He held the bag, and it was the beginning of his downfall. He couldn't handle it. It corrupted him. So if there's any suspicion of dishonesty then that man should not be considered in places of leadership. I sit, of course, on boards where we interview people for credentials, and invariably I have to look across the table looking at the questionnaires that they have filled out, and there's a section in there about finances, and I see often, I mean often, visa payments and uh, MasterCard payments and Sears payments and, GMAC payments, and I see these incredible bills that these people owe who are trying to get papers to minister. And I have to look at them very sternly and say, my friend, until you get this under control, you are not fit to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the devil will use this quicker than almost anything I've ever seen in my life in leadership. If you don't, bring it under the subjection of the Holy Spirit. God knew what he was talking about when he had Paul write this. You cannot be greedy for money or things. You have to get finances under control. Well, number seven, a man who successfully manages his own household one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Look at verse 5. Doesn't this make sense? For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If a man can't take care of that little church called the family, how could he ever take care of the big church called Capital Christian Center or First Assembly of God or whatever the name of the church may be? It is not logical to assume that he is capable of taking care of the church of Jesus Christ if he can't take care of his own family. And you will pardon me if at times I parade my family in front of the church. I do that on purpose. I do that as a statement to this church and to the world that I have a right to lead, I have a right to teach, I have a right to preach, I have a right to manage this church, not because of the call of God alone, but because of my family. That is a credential that is stronger than the ordination card that I carry in my billfold. I will show you my family before I'll ever show you my ordination card. And I say that with a great deal of gratitude to God. And in humility, thank him for a family that is in order. That says something. If a man cannot bring his family into subjection and into order, the Bible says he's not fit to lead the church of God. So you look for that. must have that. Now, I didn't make that up. That was God who pointed that out to the Apostle Paul. Number eight, a man who is spiritually taught and mature. And that's in three separate verses, verse 6, verse 9, and verse 10. You will see in those verses that this leader is spiritually taught and spiritually mature, pointing out again that a young convert should never be placed into responsible service. Not a novice. A firm grip on the truth of God, verse 9, he knows this book, the Bible. He has discernment in spiritual matters, holding the mystery of the faith, discerning the faith. And, verse 10, he is willing to have a probationary period so that his gifts and qualities may be tested. That's in verse 10. Let these also first be proved. Now let me digress for just a moment to say again to all of you who are interested in any kind of ministry, whether it be here or somewhere else, please prove yourself. Don't get anxious. Don't get nervous. Don't think that God is going to pass you by if you don't sail to Africa tomorrow. There is an awful lot of pruning and an awful lot of honing that needs to be done for people who are going to be leaders. And that happens right in the local church. Submit yourself to the leadership of the church. Get involved in the ministry of the local church and the leadership of the local church will have a meeting to determine whether you're qualified for any kind of leadership here or in other places. That's just sensible if we're going to have order and growth in the work of God. Let them be proved. Don't chafe at that. That's God's order for your benefit. Number nine, a man of obvious humility. Verse number six, not a novice lest being puffed up with pride. He fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Interesting statement. What did the devil do? Or as he was called Lucifer, the son of the morning, he lifted himself up to be equal with God and God had to cast him out of heaven. He was puffed up. And God would not share his glory with another. So he fell through pride. Micah 6.8 says, Walk humbly with thy God. There are many other passages of Scripture that talk to us about humility, about being willing to be a servant. And if a man is not willing to be in that category, he is not qualified to be a leader in the local church. There's one more, a man who has the right kind of wife. Verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. May I introduce her to you? She's right here on the front row. She allows me to say things about her publicly with a smile. Honestly, sometimes I think some of you must think I'm terrible. In fact, some of you have told me that. But my wife and I really do have a wonderful relationship. And if I felt for a moment that what I was saying was going to damage her, I would not do that. She has, for so many years, gotten used to my personality that she expects it. I really think she would think I was sick if I didn't do that once in a while. I have been teasing her for 34 years. It's just my way. And we understand that. So I hope you understand that. And the reason I can do it is she's such a wonderful, perfect wife for the preacher. She has never embarrassed me one time. She has made me eligible for the ministry. Conversely, I know wives who have made men ineligible for the ministry. And that's tragic. Right now, we're dealing with several of those cases in our own district where women have said after numbers of years, I don't want to be in the ministry anymore. And they walk out on their preacher husband, disqualifying him for the ministry. What a heartache. They will bury their head on your shoulder and weep, moan, and groan because their call is to preach the word. But a wife makes them ineligible for that responsibility because she finally says, I don't want any part of it. Thank God for women who are willing to stand in the gap, who are serious and dignified, which is what that word reverent implies, who are not slanderous. They know how to control their tongue. They're not spreading evil report through the congregation. They're self-controlled, just like the minister, sober or self-controlled. And they are reliable and trustworthy or faithful in all things, as the Bible says. Thank God for a white line. I hold her up as an example. If a church wouldn't want to elect me, they ought to elect her because she fills the requirements. And there are many more like her, thank God, through the world. And I believe they're going to have a special reward when they stand in the presence of God because it's not easy. It's not easy being the wife of the man who stands up in front and has to say, "Thus saith the Lord." But there are wives who are as called, are as called to the position of the wife as the man is called to the position of the minister. And so it is, thank God, in our case, in many other cases. Now in conclusion, Just a reminder that Paul does not set this standard. God set it. God established it. And in verse 13, there is an incentive to faithfulness. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. There are blessings and there are rewards. They purchase to themselves a good standing. In Galatians chapter 5, the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit are listed. And if you want to add to what is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, add Galatians 5, 22, 23, where these fruits of the Spirit are listed, for these should be also the marks of a true leader in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that helps, friends. I don't get an opportunity very often to talk on this subject, to explain to you some of the things that I've tried to explain from my heart on these particular verses of Scripture. But I think it is important to hear them. I think it is important for us to study them as this church progresses, as it continues to grow, and as leadership comes and goes. Let us remember the qualifications. May I say to you, we are not going to vary or divert from those qualifications. They will always be the guideline for this local church. We will stick to those. You may ask, how do you know when you're selecting staff, when you're selecting deacons, if they qualify? Well... In terms of staff, we meet together at length. We talk a lot. I know quite a bit about these folks before they ever arrive here. In regard to deacons, we give them a questionnaire to fill out before they ever presented to you. They have to fill out a questionnaire and answer questions that are very direct, very pointed, right out of these scriptures that I have read to you tonight. And if they do not match up, they do not get presented to the congregation as prospective leaders. So there is a process that we go through in order to protect the household of faith, in order to keep the faith secure in the local community where that church is found. If you understand and if you approve of what God has pointed out through Paul, To the early church, say amen again. Amen. 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 Let's stand.